Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by SATC Solution Center L3C. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to this very special episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. We know we're usually pretty Chicago-centric and focusing here on Chicago business and its industry, but we have a special guest with us today. We have Dougold Hamilton from, uh, he's actually from Brisbane, Australia, so he's made a trip over to do some work and took some time to chat with us today. Uh, We also have Bob Tepper, one of the principals here at SATC Law, so we're excited to have both of you here with us today, so thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, Obviously, we have a lot of questions for you. We have a lot that we want to learn about what you're doing, but can you just start with maybe a basic introduction of what life is like for you in Australia, maybe what it was like being educated there and um, coming into being an attorney and getting into that field in a different place? Sure thing. I mean, I guess for me personally, I've, it's one of the things I've always wanted to be since I was five years old was to be a lawyer. I think it's probably one of the most boring things to choose when you're five years old. You're not a firefighter or a superhero or something like that, but I wanted to be a lawyer. So that was sort of my driving goal. And um, I didn't immediately get into law school because law school in Australia is a little bit different to the way they run it in the US. We run it as an undergraduate degree. So you can come straight out of high school at 18 years of age and start your law degree and four years later you can be admitted as a lawyer. Um, so I did, did a year of a justice degree um, and then merged that degree with a law degree and did uh, five and a half years and I have a dual degree in law and justice from the Queensland University of Technology. But um, law school I think is probably relatively similar. It's uh, a lot of reading, a lot of cases, a lot of... Uh, Sounds exciting. Mock- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's... Law school teaches you critical thinking. It doesn't necessarily teach you the law. And I mean, there's a lot of, in Australia, there's a lot of criticism at the moment about where law schools should be going with their with their educational program. But I think the educational program in general, the big skill set they teach, and I think it's probably similar across the board because is the critical thinking, the substantive law you learn once you hit into practice and define your practice area and sort of go from there. So what is a justice degree? That's different. It's sort of, I guess it's more along the policing corrections side, but it has a lot of access to justice elements to it. It was focusing, I guess, a lot on disadvantaged people, um, how they may access justice, but then also how they would interact with the policing side of the law. It has some contractual and taught elements to it, but most of it was along that sort of social justice, but still within a legal framework. And so when you were young and you were deciding to go into this, Was there something that made you say, okay, the justice portion of this is kind of what I want to pursue. This is what really piques my interest. Or what was it about it at the time that made you think about doing that? I think I've always wanted to help people. Like even when I'm very quiet helping my family, helping my friends, always sort of had that drive within me to be helping people. So when I didn't quite make the mark to get into law school, um, it made it made a reasonable sense to sort of, and I'd always thought of pairing the two degrees anyway, so it was an easy sort of decision to go down that route. And then, um, yeah, just really enjoyed it. And it probably doesn't have the day-to-day applicability that my law degree has, but it definitely helps with understanding what is going on out in the world and what may be the key issues sort of long-term for access to justice and then um, obviously filtering that into pro bono work and things like that. So maybe not doing exactly what you were thought you were going to or not taking the same route maybe as other people would have. 
Do you feel like that provided you a different perspective on law or a different perspective on what your what you wanted to do with this law thing was? Yes and no. I mean, I think it definitely gave me some insight into a world that I personally would never have grown up in. I mean, being able to go to law school is quite a privilege in general, so I haven't necessarily come from that disadvantaged background where I would have experienced those day-to-day instances of not being able to access justice or not being able to afford certain things. It it definitely gave me that insight. Um, It also made me realise that I didn't want to be a criminal lawyer or mm-hmm. those things. That that wasn't where my passion lay. So despite going into law school thinking, yes, this is where I may end up as a end of the career sort of goal, um, once I got in there, I realised it wasn't where my true passion was. And it wasn't until I guess I started working um, in general practice when I got out of law school that I really found what I was interested in. Yeah. What would you say like the public perspective of attorneys in in Australia is because I know here there's a lot of jokes there's the old school you know attorney jokes that we all love to hear but what's it like in Australia what do people think of attorneys in Australia um I mean it's probably relatively similar we've got good and bad reputations there's some pretty controversial stuff going on in the news in Australia about um, a couple of barristers uh, who breached privilege to inform on their clients to the police Uh, so we've got some reputational issues as well but I think in general they're fairly well um, respected, and I think uh, the the general public perception of lawyers that they're relatively trustworthy. I mean, we obviously have the same issues that costs are expensive, and access to justice is obviously an issue for people who can't necessarily afford the high legal costs. Um, but I think we're very similar in terms of the way we practice. We have a very similar sort of legal system. Um, so yeah, I think it's probably relatively similar. We definitely get the same sort of jokes. So. Sim- similar to ours or to the British system? Do you have barristers and solicitors? We do have a divided profession. Um, it depends on which state in Australia. Some states you can practice as both. In Queensland, when I, where I practice, you're either one or the other. So barristers, I guess, are your more tactical support uh, court system lawyers. Um, but our general litigation lawyers, which is where I practice, we also do a lot of court work as well. So it's not exclusively barristers, but they're definitely a good, uh, a good sort of support system, and they they're very specialised in what they do. Can you tell us what those two terms mean? What what the difference between a barrister and a solicitor would be? So I guess your solicitor's client centric. So they are they have the direct contact with the client. They do the day to day general procedural operations for the client. They do the general advice work. They do do the court work as well. But a barrister, I guess. 99% of the time is only able to be engaged by a bar- by a solicitor unless they choose to take a direct brief from a client. Um, so they're sort of an independent part of the profession. They're generally the considered by the courts to be more seniority. So the seniority in terms of their position, um, they're more senior p- practitioners, but that not, they may not have been admitted for the same amount of time as a lot of other solicitors. But generally, they're specialised um, court court advocates is probably where they stand. Um, and they do very high detailed advice work. And it's sort of a good sort of... They work well together um, in sort of the way we, we run our practices. So what do you think the advantage or maybe the reason for having the separate kind of attorney roles is with that? It gives a level of independence... Um, Particularly, I mean, our duties, ethical duties, our first duties to the administration of justice in the court, and that applies to all lawyers. But when you're a solicitor and you're dealing directly with a client, it's very easy to become quite attached to the client's cause. And not that your independence gets clouded, but you definitely can start to become a very strong advocate. Barristers, 
in especially in larger matters where there's a lot more at stake they can add a level of independence where they are divorced from the actual client relationship so they come to it with fresh eyes and they're able to sort of show us that yes whilst that point is a is a point that could be run it's not necessarily the best point and you should be running these other points instead sort of thing yeah so just the checks and balances kind of thing yeah that and i think also because they're so heavily trained they do a lot more court work than i would do um in the day-to-day they're in court every week sort of thing whereas i personally would appear in court maybe three or four times a year um because of the way we use barristers they have a lot a high, higher skill set in that in big trials they're almost a necessity because of the way they their skill set in cross-examining witnesses and understanding evidentiary objections um the solicitors in trial work really run a facilitating role they make sure the barristers have got everything they need make sure the client's being taken care of um, but they don't have to worry necessarily about what the next question to ask is so if if you go to trial on a case for a client mm-hmm. and you've engaged a, a barrister do you co uh, co-chair the trial with the barrister generally not generally um, depending on how many barristers you engage you engage sometimes you might have multiple barristers so we have a Queen's Council which are I guess the senior barristers who are appointed by a court um, or we call them silks as well then we have junior barristers or just regular barristers and they will do trials together and they will do sort of the co-chair sort of thing very rarely would a solicitor be involved in the actual I guess advocacy in a court we're more procedural we do a lot of the paperwork we do a lot of the submission drafting with the barristers Um, we help facilitate witnesses um, do the sort of witness interviews with the barristers but once you're in a courtroom um, solicitors sort of sit there and take notes (laughs) (laughs) interesting yeah, one of the things that I was interested to learn when I first came to work at the practice here is that uh, not all attorneys go to court. In fact, a lot of them generally you know, may never go to court or will only go maybe a few times in their early part of their career. But I just imagine that most attorneys go to court pretty regularly. But it was surprising me, for me to learn that not all attorneys go to court. It's, it's much the same in Australia as well. I mean, I personally love the courtroom. I think it's mm-hmm. once I got into practice and I got sort of a taste of the litigation sort of side of things, I realised that was really where I, I wanted to direct my practice. But there's definitely a lot of lawyers who would never want to step foot in a courtroom <laughs> anyway. So it all sort of works out. Um, there's different personalities and people have different sort of tastes and what they really enjoy in, within the law. So yeah. I think it's sort of a good balance we struck. It's good. One of the things that I noticed with your career is um, I see this word boutique (laughs) out there a lot. And even in the young part of your career, it seemed like you were working for boutique firms. And so um, can you tell me about what that means? What does it mean to work at a boutique law firm? Um, So I started off in what I would call a general practice firm. It was me and um, my principal solicitor. There were just two of us, really. Um, I did a bit of everything. So everything from commercial litigation, wills and estates, conveyancing, um, property transactions, leasing. Realized that 90% of that stuff I didn't enjoy and really was litigation is what I wanted to do. So I guess a couple of years into my career, I made the decision to get into a specialist firm. And that's where I ended up in a boutique commercial uh, commercial litigation an insolvency law firm. A boutique firm, I guess, is really just a specialised firm. It's relatively small. We had, I think, 20 solicitors um, within the firm. Um, It was 85% litigation and insolvency work. We had a very small commercial team, but it was a very well-renowned, specialised firm, and we did some pretty unbelievable work for the size of the firm, but I got some amazing experience out of it. 
Yeah, and, and with that experience, what would you say was something that you really enjoyed about that sort of work and something that really kind of sticks with you and you want to continue on with? I think it was understanding how to actually run litigation matters well. And the firm I was at have, they are very competent um, partners who ran the firm. They had different levels of expertise and experience. One of the partners there, I would say, is probably the brightest commercial mind I've ever seen. Um, he just understood how to see through the the sort of the, the haze and find the real commercial points and stick it to, to that sort of um, part of it. But I think running, learning how to run litigation well and efficiently was the big part of it. And it's really what enabled me to step out onto my own and start my own firm. So as, as a solicitor, you can run the litigation up to, up to trial? So we would probably run it in conjunction with a barrister generally. So depending on what stage you get to, you can brief a barrister at the beginning of a matter and they will help you draft your pleadings, help you with affidavit material. But we do a lot of the drafting to begin with. We send it to a barrister, they will settle it and they will sort of make it fit within that because they will ultimately be the person who will argue the case. Um, so we like to make sure they're comfortable with what we're saying is. But we do a lot of the initial drafting and we're involved in that all the way up to sort of the closing submissions within a trial. Trial, we have a solicitors generally have a broader and greater understanding of a matter so they understand bits and pieces that a barrister may not have appreciated they'll also understand the client's commercial goals with a, which a barrister isn't in, engaged to really consider but we make sure that everything's sort of kept on that final track because if the client's not achieving what they want out of it they're just spending money for no reason interesting yeah, and I'm, I'm interested to hear with the sort of change here in the U.S. I know, you know, we're going away from these big box places. Everything's online. You shop online. You can send stuff back online. You know, a lot of people are going towards the, the online shopping thing. And so it's changed a bit the way we do commercial real estate here. And so I imagine it's much the same for you. But have you seen change in commercial real estate or commercial litigation in Australia because of shopping trends? I think the internet has definitely changed the way people engage lawyers. In the beginning of my career, I any client would want to sit in front of you face-to-face -face on day one, look you in the eye and work mm -hmm. out what you're doing. They're too busy these days. They've got a million other things that they want to do. So 90% of my clients these days, they either email me, call me, and just get me to start working. I may not even meet my client ever face-to-face -face for the duration of a matter, either because they're not in Brisbane where I'm based, they're potentially overseas, um, or they just don't have the time to take hours out of their day to come and sit in a lawyer's office and pay the lawyer to hear their story when they can just send you all the information via email at 2 a.m. in the morning when they've finished sort of their daily, daily work <laughs> and you just get it at 8.30 the next day and sort of start working. So I think that's definitely change the way practice is being run. Um, Technology is also allowing law firms to operate in a completely different way. Uh, the way you can establish a law firm these days in Australia is, is very cheap. Um, so the barriers to entry, um, you now no longer, longer need to buy a server and you no longer need an office premises because virtual offices exist and cloud servers exist. So if you're confident enough that you're able to run your own law firm, you can start it off very, very cheaply. So we're seeing, um, I think I heard a statistic last year or the year before, we had 300 new law firms start in Brisbane alone. So there's quite a large contingent of young lawyers or 
new age lawyers coming out who understand technology is something they can harness to really allow themselves to sort of make their life a bit better and practice in the way they want to practice. That's 300 new firms. Yes. Some of which would have multiple attorneys. Some would, yes. There would be a lot of those that would be sole practitioners. But yes, definitely multiple attorneys, um, different departments. There's some firms that have gone from being two people to 30 people within two or three years. So we're definitely seeing a growth in the smaller end of the market. We're also seeing a lot of mergers um, between the mid-section of the market to get themselves bigger. And I think there's generally been a, a squeeze on legal fees across Australia, um, especially in that middle section of the market where they have quite large overheads, but the client bases aren't necessarily your large multinational corporations. Interesting. And you mentioned insolvency law as well. So yes. is, is the insolvency law in Australia similar to our bankruptcy laws here, the practice? I think in some ways, yes. The insolvency laws here tend to be a little bit less harsh. Australian laws are quite harsh on the on the individual um, and on the corporate insolvency side of things. Your Chapter 11 bankruptcy stuff really seems to allow um, companies to trade out. Our system of voluntary administration is really just a precursor to winding everything up and closing, shutting it all down. Um, it might be that the economy in Australia is not as strong here and we don't necessarily have the same consumer buying power. We're quite a small country. I think we're about 25 million people. Um, so to actually have a company trade out of a administration is, is, is relatively difficult. But yeah, I think the insolvency laws here tend to be a lot more favourable to the actual person going through that position than what we get back home. So you mentioned technology. I want to talk about technology because that's what actually uh, I think brought you here is your interest in technology. We had the ABA Tech Show happen not long ago from when we're recording, and um, that's something that it sounds like has been an interest of yours for quite some time. So how does technology affect the way that you do business, and how does that change the way that you can do this business for your clients? Well, yeah, I think part of the, the reason I was able to start my firm um, was because of technology. I was able to make a decision that if I was going to start it off, I wanted to start it off in a very technologically heavy way. I think technology is the greatest equaliser we have within society at the moment. It allows anyone to access information within seconds, mm -hmm. but it also allows us to deliver great efficiencies. So when I started my firm, I made a decision that I was going to be a paperless litigation firm and um, I still am paperless proudly because I think uh, the cost of paper is astronomical both um, to the client from a monetary standpoint but also to the environment. Yeah. Um, and if you're printing thousands and thousands of pages per day to read when you could simply read it on a tablet or a computer screen, um, it makes it a lot easier. But it also allows me to be mobile. I mean, I'm in Chicago for a month at the moment. Um, it allows me to come to the ABA Tech Show and do the Global Legal Hackathon and do a lot of other things that will benefit my business and my clients. But also I'm working remotely from a WeWork office here. I'm just on a little bit of a different time time zone, but um, it's allowed me to access my firm day in, day out, no matter where in the world I am. So that sort of freedom and flexibility adds to my ability to be a happy lawyer. Yeah. It also provides your clients with the more direct contact with you. So it's not like, okay, if I send you a letter, I can expect to hear back in two weeks or, you know, 
could be longer depending on where they're located versus where you're located. And now if they send an email, you often find that they're wanting an answer the same day within the next day. You know, I think there's sort of that catch-22 with it where it's like, yeah, it's easier to do your work, but your clients, and as you said, information is easier to get and the interaction is much easier for your clients and the expectations kind of change with that. I think you're right, but ultimately, I guess from the lawyer's perspective is the clients are our business. They're, they're where we able to generate our own revenue, but it's also what we're designed to do, our entire role. I mean, the role of lawyers since the beginning of time is to help people. Um, definitely the internet age has sped up the way people want to consume. It's very much right here, right now. And if it's not right here, right now, well, then I'm not really interested in it. But I think that's just us needing to adjust to what the client needs are. It might mean that if you can't do the client's work immediately, just simply being able to email saying them, I've got your email, thank you very much, I will come back to you within this period of time. And most clients are happy with that as long as it's there's no impending deadlines that you need to meet or court dates that are upcoming. Um, clients are very understandable that you that you run a busy practice and yeah. you've got a lot of work on as well. Yeah. So at some point when you're working, you decide, I'm going to branch out, I'm going to do my own thing, start my own firm. As you said, a lot of people are now doing that. And so 2-3 Legal comes to be a thing. It's now a firm, it's now got clients, and you're its founder and principal. And so what is that feeling like for you day one when you're just like all right let's do this let's let's make it happen it was it was pretty amazing i sort of went down the google route i started in my basement i was very much keep the uh, costs as low as possible because i didn't know whether it was going to succeed or fail um i had one very good client um that i started off with and then i basically met every person I knew um, and said, hey, this is what I'm doing and this is what I want to achieve. And everyone's been very receptive. But from day one, it's just been an exciting and amazing journey. It's something that I look back on and on one level can't believe that I'm doing it, but it's probably one of the best decisions I've made. Yeah. And you're still providing the same sort of services for your clients that you were doing? In- yeah, so I was still in the litigation and insolvency sphere, um, trying to do it in a little bit more of a, I guess, cost-effective way using, you know, technology to actually enhance the cost, trying to understand how I could bring automation into that, um, even if it's just automating the processes so that I actually have more available time to help clients, um, trying to work out how they would like to be billed rather than me saying, well, I bill at an hourly rate and this is how we charge, saying, well, this is how I generally bill but is that okay would you like to do it as a fixed fee would you like to do it as a staging costs or do you just want me to sort of do the work and i'll bill you for what i do sort of thing so clients i think are understanding how to engage lawyers better there's more information on how to engage lawyers better but allowing them to choose their own path of legal engagement as well has been something that i've been trying to embrace and it seems to be uh, seems to be working pretty well so you feel like the flexibility not just in the fees, but in the way that you do business and the way that you represent them is something that clients really appreciate? I think so. It allows them to make a decision on how they want to engage with me. I'm not saying, well, this is my office address. You can come in at 9 a.m. on Monday and see me. I'm saying, well, look, if it's Sunday and that's the only time you've got to email me, well, then send me the email and I'll deal with it first thing Monday. But if you can't get in the office and you want, want to come see me, I'll jump in a car and come and see you sort of thing. I... I think allowing clients to really dictate how they want to engage is 
one of the things that we're going to see a lot more demand for um, within the legal profession. Um, they have their own stresses and their own sort of world that they live in and they don't necessarily want to be told, well, this is how I want to do it and um, you can pay me for that pleasure. Yeah. Let's not talk about law for a minute. What do you like about Chicago? You've been here four times? This is my fourth time in Chicago. Um, personally, this is my favorite city in the world. I think um, it started in 1991 when I used to get up at 5am in the morning I think it was and watch Michael Jordan play for the Chicago Bulls <laughs> and win six six championships in eight years uh, and that sort of started my love of American sports so um, I fell in love with the Bulls and then in 2006 I remember watching the Super Bowl and Devin Hester returned the <laughs> opening kickoff for a touchdown and sort of fell in love with the Bears then. Um, so my first trip to Chicago was in 2007, and it was very much a sporting trip. So I went to some Bulls games. I went to the Bears-Packers game on, I think it was the 21st of December, and Brian O'Laka returned to touch Brett Favre for an interception touchdown for 76 yards, and uh, I just fell in love with the place. It was probably the coldest I've ever been because Australian clothes are not made for the winters of Chicago, but... I fell in love with the food. I fell in love with the people. The city is just unbelievable. The architecture, the museums, um, and I've been coming back ever since. Little, little colder here than at home. <laughs> oh, significantly. Um, I think as cold as it gets in Brisbane's around about forty-five degrees in the middle of winter at four a.m. So we're actually quite blessed. We live almost perpetually in summer but the converse to that is it gets extremely extremely hot and humid as well and as many people have said to me oh i wish i was living in the heat i'm like you don't want to live in that heat day <laughs> day i don't know we get those days where it's like if it would just be 45 it'd be great <laughs> and you're like that's the coldest we get yeah but Bris brisbane's a very nice um climate to live in it's a very nice city to live in yeah. but it's it's relatively small comparatively it's something you mentioned that I want to circle back to because it's really interesting to me. We have them a lot now in Chicago. It's growing, actually. These idea of shared workspaces. You mentioned WeWork. You know, there's, there's a few others. Um, do you have the same sort of thing in Australia? Is that starting to become a thing? Or Yeah, definitely. Um, I operate out of a, I guess, a co-working space. Yeah. Um, it's a very small one. It's called Little Tokyo 2. It was started by a guy who originally had a shoe design business and sort of realized that there wasn't a place for people who were entrepreneurs to get together. So I work in a, a shared office area with people who are running artificial intelligence programs, machine learning, um, customer relationship management programs, a couple other law firms, health programs. So there's a lot of diversity there. It also allows me to tap into other client sources. Um, but that, that's the shared spaces are definitely a very cost-effective way for new businesses, not just law firms, but any business these days. Um, I think we've just had WeWork open up in Brisbane, so okay. they're starting to come into the market. And there's a lot of, I guess, smaller providers that are realizing there's a, a market for it and they can make money out of it, but they can also at the same time allow new businesses to establish themselves and grow. What is the the biggest uh, incentive that provides for you as a law firm and then for them as your consumer? What, what's the best thing it does for them? It probably doesn't provide much to my clients, but it provides a large sense of community to me. I mean, being a sole practitioner, sitting in my basement for the first year, it was a relatively lonely existence. Um, I made a lot of effort to get out and do business development and marketing, but that day-to-day -day human interaction, which with my personality, I, I, I sort of thrive off, 
um, it really actually allowed me to go into a workplace every day, have yeah. people who weren't necessarily my legal colleagues, but just business colleagues in general, people to go have cups of tea with, people to have lunch with, people to sort of bounce an idea off about my business or even help them with their business. So I think it's really allowed me to expand my friendship group, expand my relationships, and also made me able to understand what new businesses are experiencing. And I think, especially with the insolvency side of the law, understanding that sort of startup mindset, it's also allowing me to help them try to turn their mind to the risks that might exist. So I guess in that, it probably actually has helped my clients a little bit. Yeah, I think a happy attorney is always a good attorney. <laughs> it's definitely the way I think the world uh, is starting to understand that uh, the uh, the happiness of lawyers is directly correlated to their ability to produce quality work. Yeah. I would definitely agree. Uh, so Australia's got to be a fun place to, <laughs> to do work, to live. What are some of the things that you get to experience there that maybe are different from here that just make it special? It's, I mean, I've, I always like in Chicago, at least the people here, they're very similar to Brisbane people. You guys are pretty laid back. You're pretty relaxed. Uh, Brisbane's a very chill, easy living place. It's not difficult to get around if you've got a car or it's pretty easy to get in and out. We're relatively small. Um, it's a small country city. We have quite a lot of nature, which is nice. Um, there's a lot of green sort of in the world in, in Brisbane particularly. So I get to uh, experience that, which is always sort of, I guess, makes you happy when you get to see green trees 365 days a year. And there's no, unfortunately, no snow. I quite like the snow, but um, I imagine <laughs> if I lived in it day in, day out, it might, might have a different opinion. That's sort of a big part of it is, but we've also got access to some really, um, some really sort of innovative things um we're starting to understand technology a lot better i mean i don't think a lot of people realize but australia was one of the nations that developed wi-fi we just didn't trademark it or copyright it so we gave it to the world for free but australia is quite an innovative um world we um we don't necessarily have the best tax laws for it but we definitely produce a lot of interesting sort of technology out of australia i read somewhere today we were the third country in the world to launch its own satellite from its own land um which was which was surprising to me. So I think uh, wow. that side of uh, Australia is, I guess, a bit of an untapped world. But definitely we have a very beautiful country, um, one that we're trying to protect now, which is good. But um, if you ever come down, it's, uh, it's there's some pretty amazing beaches and we have the reef and the deserts are pretty cool as well. Yeah. So do you have the equivalent of our Silicon Valley with uh, the tech startups and... It's starting to sort of be talked about. We don't necessarily have a direct sort of hub. Um, I think a lot of people, especially in that sort of startup hub world, are starting to explore the idea of creating tech startup hubs just below my building. Um, there's another startup hub who's focused on technology people only. But I wouldn't say we are like Silicon Valley where we have the large big corporations. Um, unfortunately, Australian tax laws are not that conducive to that level mm. of innovation. Um, but we're, we're definitely something that I think Australia is starting to focus on. So tell me about the future of 2-3 Legal. Where do you see it sort of going from here as you're continuing work? Um, I think the next sort of five years I'm looking to grow. I want to add some staff to the firm, um, start to sort of build the client base out a bit. But I think long term, I'd like to um, take it in a few different routes. I think the traditional practice of law is always going to be part of the core businesses. But I myself realize that I don't 
for the next don't in 10 15 years want to continually be on the tools day in day out Mm -hmm. i really want to run the business of law but with that i think i also want to be able to give back to the world um i have designs on creating some form of not-for-profit arm to the business so that i can allow people to access justice a little better whether that's through a technology platform whether that's through offering a community legal center or some other form of hybrid i think that's definitely something that is passionate within myself um and it's something that i was sort of brought up to to understand that you know you've got a very distinct and unique skill set that very few people in the world actually have so you should actually use that to help people where you can as well do you see the younger attorneys coming up, are they learning sort of the same things? Are they learning new things? Are they learning in new ways that are really kind of piquing your interest or, or making you go, oh, that's that's good? I think this is the big question that law is facing is how to deal with the millennial lawyers. Um, <laughs> I think, and I'm, I guess I technically fall within the bracket of millennials. Uh, I was born, I think, 1984, so I would probably be considered an elder millennial, but the millennial lawyers these days are forcing law firms to reevaluate how they interact with the world. Um, the technology side of things, especially with the younger generations, they understand it significantly more than anyone does. Yeah. They can access technology in ways that I can't even do or that you know my former sort of partners could, couldn't even understand. So I think that is really driving a lot of innovation within law. Um, we're seeing... Uh, a really good friend of mine and a colleague, she's developing a platform uh, which allows law students to do legal research for law firms on a consultancy basis. They don't necessarily get told the client or what the problem is, but they get told a research question. The law students then get to tap into that and allows them to build their own skill set because getting hired out of law school is obviously becoming a lot more difficult these days. There's not as many jobs. The market's a lot tighter because firms are realising that they can deliver things cheaper through technology or that there's just an oversupply of law students. But at the same time, it's easier for them to say, okay, well, if I can't find a firm that's going to hire me, I can just start my own and kind of start small and see what happens. In Australia, a little bit different. You need to have at least two years of supervised practice before you can start your own firm. Um, And even then, I think at two years, it'd be a very difficult sort of proposition. You don't necessarily have the skill set. I tend to find, and myself has experienced, that around about five years is when you start to really take the training wheels off and being allowed to sort of run things without much much if any oversight but um i think that early stage of that sort of early stage of a career you really need to find a good quality mentor um within a firm or a good quality firm to work for and build those skills i think unfortunately and we've had a few issues with this recently in australia is the younger um you would call them associates we just call them junior lawyers they tend to work um very long, very hard hours doing large bulk document review or large bulk um, work and they're not necessarily getting a breadth of skill set. They're very confined within what the client needs. Um, And we've had some sort of, I guess, workplace health issues recently because we've been running a big banking royal commission um, and some of the grad lawyers were working some pretty crazy hours. Yeah, sounds familiar. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, and, and, it, and it, it is. I mean, I remember doing long hours when I started off as well. And I think part of it is being a lawyer is you're a high achiever anyway. So you push yourself to go above and beyond. Um, you don't necessarily understand how unhealthy that is in the early part of your career. And I think it's sort of becoming a little bit more understood that we need to take time out and get a little bit of balance in your world. 
Yeah. How did you uh, design and and uh, come to the name of your firm? Because it's an interesting name, Two Three Legal. So it was it was actually funny. I uh, I woke up at one a.m. in the middle of the planning process and just realized that every single person who comes through my door or calls me, emails me, they have a massive problem already. And whether that's an insolvency problem, they've got a financial dispute with someone, they're fighting with their business partner, everyone already has a problem. So the first step is them actually realizing they have a problem. And that's something that I can't help them with. They need to make that realization on their own and then contact me. So the one is actually taken care of. Um, the second step is, the cl- and this is where the two comes in, the client themselves need to find the right lawyer for them. And I am more than happy to admit I'm not the right lawyer for everyone. I think clients have their own personalities. They like certain styles. If you don't like my style or where a personality that clashes, it's not going to be a good working relationship. So the clients really need to then make a decision on their lawyer. And that might mean meeting with certain lawyers or shopping around or if they get a good referral from someone. And I'm more than happy to send my clients to other lawyers who I think will be more suitable for them. Um, And then the third step is really it's a collaborative step. Law, I think traditionally has been, you come to me with the problem and I'll give you the solution. The way I see law developing and advancing these days is it's more working with, the client also needs to give us the resources, but we need to give the client the, collaborate with them to work out what they really want to achieve. It's not as simple as this is the answer, but that might not be the answer they're seeking. So working in collaboration with your clients is really where it came from. And it allows them to achieve what they want, but it also allows me to get them the right answer. Interesting. Can you tell me something that your mentor shared with you that has stuck with you through the time and then kind of take on the role of mentor and share with our listeners something that you would tell them if you could say anything to them, what would you leave with them? I think the biggest thing that I remember, and it was one I was told, I guess, in the first couple of days as a law student when I was working as a law clerk was never assume that you know the answer. It's always better to go back and reread the same section of that act that you've read a million times and you might be able to quote it off the top of your head but going back to the source is always the most important thing because A, it may have changed or B, you may have misread something or you may see it in a different light given the factual circumstances. So the biggest thing I was ever taught was never make an assumption that you know the answer always double triple check yourself because at the end of the day we're paid to give the right answer um if you make the mistake it's costly for your client but it's also costly for you both reputationally and then from a from a negligence perspective so um that has probably been the thing that stuck through me with me my entire practice is making sure that when you're looking at it never make an assumption that the law is actually what you think it is making mm-hmm. sure you when you read it it is it is what it is mm-hmm. Good advice. <laughs> yeah, well, this is Nathan Leverich. I've been here with uh, Dugold Hamilton and Bob Tepper today. It's been a treat having you. Thank you for stopping in and sharing with us, and uh, we wish you the best. And um, thank you for joining us again on this episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. Thank, thank you very you much. Very much. No, thank you. It's a pleasure. listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solution Center. As always, feel free to reach out to us on social media with your comments and suggestions. You can email us at solutioncenter at satcltd.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram where our handle is 
at Bridging Chicago. And don't forget to rate, subscribe, and comment on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solutions Center, Shank Annis Tepper Campbell, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the host and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.